we ended our last sermon with verse 31, which read, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. This is Luke's conclusion statement about the situation of the early church after discussing Stephen's martyrdom, Philip's ministry to the Samaritans, and the expansion of the gospel by the early church, and Paul's conversion. Those have all been covered. This is his summary statement in that regard. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. As we conclude chapter 9 in verses 32 through 43, Luke inserts two vignettes, two short stories of miracles at the hands of Peter. Luke probably did this in part to set the stage for the next expansion of the mission of the early church, namely to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. First, they had evangelized Jerusalem and Judea, pushed from there via persecution, you may recall. They secondly brought the gospel to the Samaritans. That was no small thing. That would cause a stir. It had to be approved by the church at Jerusalem and everything. Oh, this isn't just for the Jews. Even the Samaritans are involved. And now, and now the third phase of the mission in chapters 10 and 11, we will see how the gospel is brought to the Gentiles through the conversion of Cornelius. So the church continues to expand in its mission, and it's done so at the hand of Peter. So these verses are a transition device in the writing of Luke's narrative here. They show how the Lord was using Peter at this time in miraculous ways outside of Jerusalem. He's setting the stage for chapters 10 and 11 with the gospel going also to the Gentiles. He wants people to see how the Lord was using Peter in miraculous ways before he shares that story about Peter and Cornelius, which we'll look at over the next couple of weeks after this. So why don't we stand and we'll read verses 32 through 43, and then I'm going to preach this morning. Verse 32 says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. Can't help but think here of the story, right? Where they removed the tiles and lowered the guy down where Jesus was. Jesus said similar things to that man when he healed him. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple, this is the second vignette, named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. This, of course brings up memories of Jesus regarding Lazarus. Then Peter arose and went with them, 
When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. He hung out with a blue-collar worker. (laughs) May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is The Purpose of Miracles. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks and praise to you for this time in your word, and we ask that you would use it for good in our hearts and minds, that we would understand your ways and your thoughts better because of this time in your scripture. Lord, use each one in the days ahead to bring glory to your name and to point men unto your Son. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could be seated. I only want to point out two matters in these transitional vignettes. That's it. It'll be short. Two matters. One, that miracles have a purpose and function in the furtherance of the gospel in the earth. Okay. That miracles have a purpose and function in the furtherance of the gospel in the earth. And secondly, I want to discuss the matter of kneeling when we pray, per verse 40 here. I want to talk a little bit about kneeling. Notice verse 35, starting off here with the first vignette. Uh, Pardon me, the first matter I want to speak to, that miracles have a purpose and function in the furtherance of the gospel in the earth. Notice verse 35, what it says. After this miracle takes place, this healing miracle, it says, So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. After this healing miracle of Aeneas, there's this huge turning to the Lord by the populace. And notice also verses 42 and 43, after the resurrection miracle, regarding Tabitha, the being raised from the dead. It says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a Tanner. I've heard Christians make a big deal out of miracles over the years, saying things like, If we could just get the power of God in our lives so that miracles were being done through our lives, we would see the world one to Christ. And I've, I've watched Christians spend many, many months, many years seeking for that special power to make miracles and signs and wonders happen at their behest. Because they, they believe that. That if they could just do signs and wonders, everybody would come to Jesus. They'll say things like, look at all these people coming to the Lord through these miracles. They'll point to passages just like what we just read. Look at all these people coming to the Lord through these miracles. If we could see that today... Think how many would come to know him in our day. Then they say something like, miracles win people to God. And I want you to know that's absolutely false. Miracles do not win people to God. Rather, miracles provide an opportunity to preach the gospel and declare truth unto men. 
That's what miracles do. They provide an opportunity to preach the gospel and to declare truth unto men. Remember, Luke's purpose here in chapter 9, our passage, 42, um, pardon me, verse 32 through 43, Luke's purpose here is not to explain the purpose and function of miracles. Rather, it was to show how Peter was being used of the Lord in miraculous ways to set the stage for Peter having his hand in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles to add to his credibility in that huge matter, which is about to be unfolded in chapters 10 and 11. Luke had already demonstrated the purpose and function of miracles earlier in his narrative here in the book of Acts. He had already dealt with the purpose and function earlier. And that purpose and function is to provide an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to men. The place where he had already done it earlier is chapter 3, which we've already covered. But I have some things to say about this matter that I said nothing of back then. So let's turn to chapter 3 and look at exactly what I'm talking about. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them, like silver or gold. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Remember, this is a 40-year-old man. He had been there for decades outside. Remember all that talked about? Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly wondering, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he said, Ah, this is my opportunity to set up a healing ministry and start selling blessed hankies. (laughs) No, that isn't what he did at all, is it? He understood what the purpose and function was of signs and wonders, of miracles taking place, that it's an opportunity to present the gospel to people. They've stopped, they've seen something incredible. They're more open to listening to the truth of God's word at that moment. So when Peter saw it, it says in verse 12, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And he goes on from there. What does he do? He declares truth to them. He declares the gospel to them. He points them to Jesus Christ. That is the purpose and function of miracles. It provides an opportunity to declare the gospel to men, to declare truth unto men. And we see that throughout Scripture. 
that that is the case. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Let me just give you a couple more examples. John chapter 3. Remember the Pharisee named Nicodemus meeting with Jesus? Well, look what he says here early on in chapter 3. Verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, because he didn't want to be seen with him, because Jesus was held in bad esteem by the religious folk. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is like, I know you're of God because these miracles, these signs are taking place. And what does Jesus say? Does he respond by saying, oh, glad you noticed that. Glad you figured it out, Nicodemus, while you're talking to me here under the cover of night. No, what does he do? He immediately gives him truth, right? He responds by saying, most assuredly, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So immediately, Jesus takes the signs, the wonders, the miracles that are taking place, which Nicodemus has noticed, and has given him pause to think, maybe I should listen to what this man has to say. And what does he do? He gives him words. He gives him the gospel. He gives him truth. Amen? He doesn't set up a blessed hanky ministry. He doesn't, you know, make that the preeminent thing. He doesn't say, yes, I am wonderful. Right? The scriptures are repeatedly clear on this. The miracles, the signs, the wonders are an opportunity if God uses you in that way to immediately point men to Jesus Christ. To declare the gospel to them, to declare truth unto them. Another example, uh, just one more. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Uh, Pardon me, Luke chapter 16. Can you tell I'm tired today? I can. So we're at Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Remember the story about this man named Lazarus and this rich guy that Jesus told? It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Laid at the rich man's gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels in Abraham's bosom. By the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in hell... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, Between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, 
that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So this guy, the rich guy, wants Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead and testifies to his brothers because, well, if he sees some, they see some guy raised from the dead, then they'll believe, right? That's what the rich guy's thinking. That's his whole mindset. That's why he wants Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to his brothers. They'll believe if they see this dead guy. But look what Abraham says to him in verse 29. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And look what Abraham says. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Miracles, signs, and wonders do not win men to Christ. They do not convert men to Christ. It's the gospel. It's words. The word has to be proclaimed to men. And when they hear the word, they either accept or they reject. They either believe or they deny. Understand? Do you see how important words are here? This is exactly what I told them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. God has subjected men to words, to either believing the words of his gospel or denying the words of his gospel. Our duty is to bring the words of the gospel. Our duty is to bring him to them, to make him known to them. And the way we do that is not through a bunch of signs and wonders and, wow, everybody's on board. We're all eating free bread and fish. 5,000 fed from a couple of fish, a couple loaves, right? No, men are only truly one to Christ when they hear the preaching of the gospel and they believe it. Look at Acts chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. Acts chapter 4 Verses 29 and 30. The early church is praying and they say, Now, Lord, look on their threats. Okay, because remember the confrontation with the civil and religious authorities had taken place. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants, look what they pray for, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And then look what it says in the very next verse. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They understood that miracles, signs, wonders provided an opportunity to preach the word, to declare the gospel to men. That is their purpose. That is their function. They are not an end in themselves. They do not truly win men to Christ. You have to understand that. And yet there's all kinds of Christians in America today who want to get that special power to do miracles and signs and wonders, thinking that everyone will be one to Christ if they see a miracle, a sign, a wonder. The truth of the matter is, the emphasis of Scripture is upon the proclamation of the Word of God, which we are all to participate in. We are all to make him known to men. 
Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. Look what it says there. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 17. The scripture reads, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We must preach to men words. That's what God's given men, words. And we have a duty as his ambassadors, as his witnesses, as his people to declare those words to men. We're not to keep these things to ourselves. We're not to put that on a shelf that we pull out once in our lifetime. I've shared this before. The last pew poll that was done, nearly 90% of Christians have never shared their go- uh, pardon me, have never shared the gospel with anyone their entire life. How is that possible? And it's readily believed by me because when's the last time someone came up to you to try to share the gospel with you? Yeah, think about it. We're to bring men words. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers that they were called by the gospel. They were called by the gospel. Men must hear words. We must preach This whole idea, you know, that preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is utter rubbish. Yep. Words are needed, they are necessary, it's how God's mandated it to be. And we must proclaim, we must use our tongue, our mouths, our lungs, and proclaim the truth of his word to men. In Titus 1.3, scripture declares that God, quote, has in due time manifested his word through preaching, unquote. Men must hear words. Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 15, quote, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, unquote. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, the scripture declares, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's words. We have a duty to declare the words of God to men, to make the gospel known to men, to make the truth of his scriptures known to men. This is hugely important. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Men need words. And God has given that to us. And how wrong are we if we don't exercise what he's given us to do and make him known to men? The 
the parable of the sower, as Jesus explains it, the seed is not signs and wonders. The seed is not miracles. It's the Word. Luke chapter 8. It's the Word. We are to go out and declare His words to men. And look what Peter will declare in chapter 10 of Acts. Our very next chapter. Peter's talking about what all God had done. And it says, And He, God, commanded us to preach to the people. We have to make Him known to men. Over 140 times, the New Testament Scriptures speak of preach, preaching, or preached. Over 140 times. The primary focus on the preaching is on the preaching of the Word, not miracles. Miracles provide an opportunity to preach. The focus is on preaching. It's on words. And God has given that to us to do. Think of that. He's given it to us, to men. Many saw Jesus' miracles and believed for wrong reasons. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus told them, because you ate of these loaves, <laughs> you are seeking me. Because you ate of loaves, you know, this is pretty cool. So they started following Jesus, but it was for the wrong reasons. They didn't truly believe. I often tell a story of a young uh, guy, he's young in my mind now, but he was actually older than me then, who I worked with named Skip, and we worked at a machine shop together. And I spent a lot of time talking with him because me and him were the night shift. (laughs) We were the night shift. Twelve hours a night in that place alone together. And um, talked a lot about the gospel. A lot about the Lord. Finally, one day, Skip says to me, he says, you know, if, oh, I actually said to him, I said, Skip, if God came down and took the Renaissance Center, which is the biggest skyscraper in Detroit where we were, and placed it in the Detroit River, I said, would you believe in him then? And he said, absolutely. If God came down, picked up that skyscraper, and set it in the Detroit River, I would believe in him. I said, so you mean that you would live for him, that you would turn from your sins and live according to his word. And he looked at me and he said, absolutely not. I continue to live just how I live. But I would believe in him. (laughs) See, that's not saving faith. Signs and wonders don't produce saving faith. You have to preach the word of God to men. They have to see that they stand guilty in his sight and that their only hope is Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sin. That's massively important. In other words, you have to give them words. You can't be like American Christianity that wants to be liked. And so, hey, I offered him a bottle of water with my church's address on it and website. You know, you can't want to be liked so you keep your mouth shut and you just do nice deeds to them and be kind to them. And suddenly, through osmosis, they come to know Jesus. Absolutely, it's all false. It's not true. You have to give them words. And when some people hear those words, they will hate you. They will no longer like you. They won't want to be around you. You understand that. That's how it goes. But there will be others who believe in Jesus. 
and lives are radically transformed, homes are repaired and reformed because men submit to his rule, believe in him. Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He was talking about his death and resurrection. That he would die and be risen from the dead. That is your sign. That is the words that we declare. That is the gospel. We should have been put to death for our sins because the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. But God in his mercy sent his son to take upon himself our sin so that if we will turn from our sin and believe in Jesus, we can obtain forgiveness of our sin and obtain right standing with God. Those are the words that we declare regarding this gospel. Amen? So that's the first matter I want to address from these two vignettes, that miracles do not win men to Christ. Rather, they provide an opportunity to present the gospel and the truth of his scriptures to men. And the second matter is I want to discuss the matter of kneeling when we pray per verse 40. And you notice that in chapter 9 of Acts, going back to our passage, verse 40 says, But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. He knelt down and he prayed. And I want to discuss just briefly this matter of kneeling and praying. Understand first off that we don't have to kneel when we pray. But it is common in Scripture to do so or it's at least not uncommon in Scripture to do so. There are many verses where Christians pray without kneeling. So again, we do not have to kneel when we pray, yet it is not uncommon in Scripture to see Christians kneel when they pray. It is also common to see Christians kneeling in early Christian art and pictures. So why do they kneel at times? Why do we kneel at times? What is the history behind kneeling? What is the symbolism here, if any? To answer that, the Hebrew words for kneel and for bless and praise are very similar. They're very similar. So there's the belief among scholars that the original posture for blessing and praising the Lord was to kneel. The Hebrews more readily stood, however, when praying or worshiping than they did kneel. Nevertheless, kneeling was a recognized part of worship for them. Many verses um, show this, like 1 Kings 8, 54, 2 Chronicles 6, 13, Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Isaiah 45, verse 23. So though the Hebrews mostly stood when they prayed, it's clearly seen in Scripture that they also kneeled. For symbolism, in biblical times, it was the posture of presenting petitions before a superior. And and you even saw that all the way up in Western civilization till the um, 16th and 17th centuries where men would make a petition before a lord or a king and they would kneel before they would place the petition there. They'd kneel before him. It was all a picture In the New Testament, kneeling was more commonly associated with prayer. Kneel 
kneeled and kneeling are only mentioned 13 times in the whole of Scripture. Only 13 times. Four of those times are recorded here in Acts. Pretty interesting, right? And this is the narrative of the New Testament. We see four of the times in all of Holy Writ regarding kneeling taking place in Acts. The first is in Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Remember, Stephen kneeled and prayed for them before they killed him, before they stoned him to death. Acts 7, verse 60. The second place is here, our passage, chapter 9, verse 40. The third place is Acts 20, verse 36, where he was with the Ephesus elders, the elders from Ephesus, and they kneeled together, it says. They prayed together. He prayed for them. And the third place is Acts 21, verse 5, where the Christian families, the men, the wives, the children, all gathered together with Paul, and it says that they kneeled on the shore and prayed. Acts chapter 21, verse 5. So it's fine to kneel and pray. I find kneeling next to my bed or next to my couch a great posture. Just to be before the Lord alone, quietly with Him. Kneeling. Sometimes we kneel in public when we pray, right? Because we just feel that in the sight of God. You should kneel. So kneeling is biblical when you pray. Some churches even have kneelers attached to the back of their pews. We don't have pews, so we don't have kneelers. So if you kneel here, well, those of you back there are in pretty good shape. You're on carpet. People up here are going to have a little rougher. You're on whatever this stuff is. So, but it looks hard. Next time we'll cover chapter 10 and watch as the gospel expands to the Gentiles. Chapter 10 and 11 is huge. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you for this time in your scripture. Lord, I ask and pray that we would all be your faithful witnesses in the earth, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would make you known to men, that we would take your gospel and your law and your word to men, that we would not put our light under a bushel and hide it inside a church building, but, Lord, that we would take it to the streets, to the highways and the byways, to a lost and dying world, O God one in rebellion to you, which needs to hear the truth of your word. May we be bold in the Holy Spirit. And may your Holy Spirit, as we speak, convict the hearts of men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. May they see their need for you. Lord, may we not be so busy that we have so many of our Martha things to do that we bypass people repeatedly. But may we take time to talk with them. May we take time to put literature in places. God, be glorified, I ask and pray, through our lives to point men to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name. You can be seated.
and we're going to take communion at this time. And you can feel free to take communion with us as long as you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, please do not take communion as the Lord's table is only for believers to observe. Thank you. And we observe the Lord's table every week at Mercy Seat, which in Protestantism is unusual these days, but we do it because it's the pattern laid out by the early church, that every week that they gathered, they observed the Lord's table, and we find it massively important to follow in that pattern because of what Scripture teaches us. Because in Scripture, we see that they did this every week. They observed the Lord's table. And that's needful for us because it reminds us that our sole means to the Father is through Christ. Because the fruit of the vine represents His shed blood. The bread represents His body. There's only these two elements at His table showing us it's through Christ alone whereby God accepts us. There isn't these two elements plus a list of all my good works up here or plus a list of all my holy living. Just these two, showing us through Christ's law. In other words, we don't do good works to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do good works because we have obtained His acceptance. And this time at His table reminds us of that important fact. The Reformers were fond of saying that we're saved through faith alone, but then they would go on and say, but saving faith is never alone. And what they meant by that is that the result or the evidence or the fruit of true saving faith is a changed life. Good works, holy living, doesn't mean you're perfect. It means there's a change that takes place. You're no longer a slave to sin. No longer ruled simply by the passions of your flesh. Christ is in you. He is the hope of glory. Amen? So this is a great salvation that he's provided us with. This is the means whereby we meet with the Father all of our Christian life here on earth. It's through Jesus doesn't matter if you've been a Christian five seconds or 55 years, it's still Jesus plus nothing. There is no other means whereby you can meet with him. And the Apostle Paul wrote of this. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen. That's our sole means of approach to the Father. It's through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this redemption that is found in your Son. Lord, you see us for what we are, mere men. All our weaknesses, shortcomings, sins. Lord, I just ask and pray that each one would draw close to you. That if they've sinned, they would confess their sin to you, O God. Because you will forgive them. That if any has sinned against them, O God, help each one to forgive them. As you have forgiven us. And Lord, may we partake here at your table. Lord, mindful of these things, desirous to serve you in the earth and to make this great salvation known to men. Be glorified through our lives, I pray, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Praise his name. Let's stand up and um, we'll close in prayer. Praise to you, O Lord. Blessing and honor unto you, Father. Worthy is your holy name. Lord, I ask and pray that you watch over each one and that you watch over each home represented here also, O Lord. God, that you would be in the lives and homes of each one. Continue to build your kingdom in each of our lives. May we provoke one another unto love and to good works. May we glorify you with our lives. May we also take time just to enjoy you, O God. Lord, we ask and pray that you would be glorified through the efforts of this church. Prepare our hearts even now for this meeting next week after church. Bring thoughts to people's minds as we contribution even, O God, to this effort. Lord, you see how many families are, are crushed and crumbled and destroyed. And for many, it's that that makes them begin to look. It makes them open to hearing the truth of your word, the utter disaster that they see their homes in. Because it's innate within men to do well in that area, O God, to have a spouse, to bear children, to establish a home. It's innate from you. It's given of you. And Lord, I just ask and pray that you would be glorified in each home represented here. Keep our hearts hungry for you, I pray and ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. May Christ be praised. God bless you.